we started to see like, holy crap, like we could, if we built this for the class eight industry, this really ends, ends up answering one of the biggest challenges they have for decarbonization is how do we get to a decarbonized future as quickly as possible? And the, the method so far has been just kind of brute force. Yeah. And the trailer ends up becoming this kind of like uh, electrification gateway or like kind of a baby step. And, and it's the plug-in hybrid exactly. EV of commercial it, it, vehicles. Exactly, exactly. And it, it, it doesn't just stop there. So I'll, I'll explain basically kind of how the technology works. Oh, yeah. yeah. Just so people understand that you're where you're coming from. Yeah. Uh, and, 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 you know, you know a lot about EVs and that's how you earn your living. But but give me the rundown of, of Ali's yeah. garage right now. So Mark right, 1 Escort. Right now I have a Mark 1 Escort with a Cosworth YB um motor making around 350 horsepower it weighs oh look at that that's weighs, fantastic uh, 2000 pounds on the dot has a quaif sequential six speed it has a full modern wrc suspension so those videos that you see of mark ii escorts doing like six foot jumps this has exactly that same suspension from those guys hey folks today's episode is brought to you by off the record i love off the record and so many of you guys do too. Not a week goes by that I get an email or an Instagram DM from someone who used off the record and just like the name implies, got those points off their record. What off the record does is if you get a ticket for anything, any kind of moving violation, they set you up with a qualified attorney in your area to fight that ticket on your behalf, working to get those points off your record. The whole process is seamless. All you do is go to offtherecord.com slash TST or download the Off The Record app and use code TST10. You then snap a photo of your ticket or scan it, upload it to Off The Record, and they handle the rest. The fee is very modest, and with our discount code, you get 10% off all your legal services with Off The Record going forward for the next several years. Uh, I say several years and not a specific time because they've been so good to us and we've been so good to them that I imagine they will extend it. It's offtherecord.com slash TST or... The Off the Record app, code TST10. You never plead guilty to tickets. It is an ecosystem that is financial in nature. It's designed to extract maximum value from your wallet. It's not about keeping people safe. It's about making money, and you shouldn't go down without a fight. That's why we love Off the Record. So go to offtherecord.com slash TST or download the Off the Record app and use code TST10 at checkout, uh, or when you log in, make an account, and that discount will be saved the next time you need it. So if you get pulled over, they're right there for you, no problemo. We love them as a sponsor. Of course, also, another sponsor I love is Dylan Optics Sunglasses. You know those sunglasses you see me wearing in every picture? The ones with the colorful matte finish lenses? Those are Dylan Optics, and they don't just look different, they look different from the inside too. It's like HD life. The NIR polarized technology reduces glare, reduces fatigue of your eyes, protects your eyes, and it uh, doesn't reflect what's in front of you. That's that matte finish. Each pair 
uh, is customized. So you go to your website, uh, you go to the website, uh, and then you you choose your frames. There's like 15, 20 frame styles. You Then you choose your lens color. So the odds are you're never going to see someone out on the street with the same pair of Dillons that you have. It's fantastic. If you go to thesmokingtire.com, our website, under the Partners tab, you will see the Dillon Optics banner. You just click on that, and that is your link. We will send you a free Smoking Tire t-shirt shirt if you buy a pair of Dillon Optics. It's a great, great company based here in the USA out of Arizona, and they are literally our longest running sponsor. Love their glasses, love them, and they keep my eyes from getting fatigued when I'm out filming in the desert, uh, I'm out uh, uh, cycling or uh, just walking or spending all day in the hot sun of a, of a car show. They are amazing, and it's a really quality product. So go to thesmokingtire.com, click on the Partners tab, get yourself a pair of Dylan Optics sunglasses, and we'll send you a free t-shirt for supporting the people that support us. All right, on today's episode of the Smoking Tire Podcast, we have a great conversation for you with Ali Javadan, who is the uh, founder and CEO of Range Energy. Range Energy is a company that is solving a real-world problem that we have in our society, which is improving the fuel economy and efficiency of semi-trucks. He is an expert in uh, electrifying automobiles and in fact was one of the earliest employees at Tesla helping to develop both the Roadster and the Model S. Uh, He has a ton of knowledge and expertise on what works and doesn't work in our uh, DC fast charging networks and we have a great discussion about that and then we pivot to what is a what is the amazing things that these guys are doing at Range Energy to improve our commercial trucking fleet by up to 40% efficiency using the existing diesel cabs we have now. Uh, Range Energy founder Ali Javadan is on today's episode of the Smoking Tire Podcast. That's radio. We could talk about watches all day. We can, and sometimes we do. Thanks for coming down. Thank you for having me. I, uh, I think... Um, the th- I, when I met you on this driving wall awesome thing, I was like, "Fucking Zach, that this guy over here is gonna be so fucking rich." <laughs> I, was like, <laughs> I was like, "This guy has ideas." I, what I like about your ideas is they're the kind of ideas where you go, "Why isn't somebody already doing that?" That's that's what Those I look for. Are the best for. ideas. That's what I look for. It's, yeah, it's kind of like look for all the look at all the noise and then step back and say, "What are people missing here?" Yeah, and why why isn't this noise turning into something on the roads? In my case. Or, or turning into commercial traction. And generally it's because one person or one entity has looked at one thing and then the rest just follow because of FOMO. And and we'll talk about well, this. Well, that's, but I mean, pick your that's right. crypto, NFTs, blah, 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 blah. Any product that Tesla launches, right? <laughs> yes. Yokes. So, yeah, uh, exactly. Yeah. But you you can be partially to blame for I'm that. A, I'm, I, I will take a lot of that blame. I mean, uh, the, you you were involved in the Model S that's right. development. What was yeah. your exact role with that? So I was the head of vehicle prototyping for Tesla Motors from 2008 through 2012. So Model S. Model S, yeah. Model 3, Model Y, uh, RAV4 EV, the second generation. Oh, yeah, the RAV4 the, EV. Remember the Mercedes Ed Bagley B-class? special. 
Yes. yes, the B class. The B class, and then in Europe it was the A class, and the first gen smart EV had our power. Oh yeah, in it too. Actually, you know who had one of those BBIs? Uh, B- uh, Batim yeah. Barisha. He loved his smart <laughs> yeah. EV. It was a lot better than the crappy engine that it came was. in. It things. was same yeah. with the Fiat Five Hundred. Yeah, 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 yeah. An EV EV powertrain. Um, it it brings up the level of the of the bottom end, yep. and then it actually, in my opinion, brings down the level of the top end because companies like Mercedes and Bentley and Rolls Royce that invested so heavily in these smooth gasoline powertrains, yeah. once you make them all EV, they all become the same. That's right. Yeah, it's it, so interesting. It's kind of, it really then becomes. What kind of tchotchkes can you add to your car? Yeah, which is right? a slippery, dangerous it, it, slope. We are we are in full mudslide mode right now. <laughs> Peak tchotchke yeah. right now. Yeah, I think yeah. so. Isn't it weird that that's like yeah. you know an an EV that's a, like my Chevy Volt was was so refined. I was like, holy shit, this car. And then when you drive, like I just drove the Mercedes EQE AMG. Oh my gosh! Right, I which drove one. it's not that. Di- I mean, other than the gadgets, it's not that different than a, a Model Three yeah. or a Maki that's half or a third of the price. That that thing that you know the thing that Tesla had initially was that powertrain. It was right. the core. Like this thing just works. It's smooth. It's got plenty of power. And then I think now, like you said, that's kind of become normalized. Everybody's EV powertrain kind of feels the same. It really right. comes down to you know how much power do you want. Nobody needs as much power as any of the EVs are putting out. Mm. Uh, and then how do you want that powertrain to feel? So, like, the throttle response from a Rivian feels way, way different than from, like, a Model Y. Right. But ultimately, the powertrain effectiveness is about the same. Yeah, and it's it's so int- – like, if you have an EV that's 1,200 horsepower versus an EV that's 400 horsepower – at 10% throttle, they feel exactly the same. Exactly. Whereas a Dodge Challenger V6 versus a Dodge Challenger Hellcat are different experiences no matter what speed you're going. Dramatically, yeah. yeah. It, it's it's a big... Because ultimately, up until 400 horsepower, both cars are going to feel exactly the same. Yeah. And if you're looking at your power curves as you're driving down the highway, you're never above 400 horsepower right. unless your foot's in the floor <laughs> yeah. all the way. And so, unless you're a Tesla man, yeah. Unless you're a Tesla guy, <laughs> I mean, I can't even count how many times people in Teslas have tried to race me. I'm sure in your car as oh, well. Yeah. And you're like, I'm just trying to get in front of you, dude. Yeah. Like, I'm not trying to race you. Yeah, like but, I'm getting off of this exit. Just yeah, stop. Yeah, like. yeah, exactly. So, um, but yeah, it's uh, the the experience at this point has now come down to like how fancy can you get with your software? And unfortunately, a lot of people are trying to get too fancy with mm. the you know throttle control software or with the drive algorithms and things like that. And it, the fundamental basic powertrain technology that was in the Volt and was in the early Nissan Leaf, it's that's good. It's really, really good. And, and now that we have all this kind of noise in the market and all the different kind of add-ons that are being thrown at these cars, I feel like there's there is kind of a, a consolidation happening if you look at some of the work that like Hyundai's doing and in uh, the Polestar, like mm-hmm. I think that's where you start to see some like design constraint and some kind of maturity in in the product, and I hope more people bring that. Yeah, when I I randomly went to a watch thing and Peter Rawlinson was there. Oh. Um, very nice man. Yep. Um, interesting guy. Yeah. I had just driven a Lucid, and uh, and and I was like, and and he was talking about how um, the the insane power 
is really just a side effect of the range. Exactly. And that, and that it's not like if you have if you have a battery that's 150 kilowatts, right? And yep. and 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 to get from 400 horsepower to 1000 horsepower is hundreds of dollars yep. in motor technology, not thousands or tens of thousands. Yeah. Why wouldn't you just do it? Yeah, there's I understand that philosophy. I know Peter very well and I and I work very closely with him through through the Model S development uh, phases. I understand that philosophy and and it is it's there's a little bit of a misconception that you know when you hear like Tesla powered like hot rod or like retro mod right it really comes down to not the power that the motor outputs it's the the battery capacity that is the the, the capacity that the battery has is directly related to how much power it puts out so what Peter was saying is that if you have a 120 kilowatt hour battery pack that power is there now in the battery pack. The motor, generally, every motor that's in an EV has more capacity than uh, than what's being put to the road. Mm-hmm. But um, it's always battery limited. And now, yes, if you have 120 kilowatt hours, you can discharge at much higher rates than a 60 or 80 kilowatt hour battery pack. Um, but you still have to shore up, you know, your bus bars and your all the connections and all the harnessing has to become more complicated and bigger. Your thermal systems have to be upgraded. So that's all extra weight. Right. So even if you do have 120 kilowatt hours, I would argue that sure you can output whatever a thousand horsepower that you whatever you want to put out. But if you also just limit yourself to six hundred horsepower, then you can actually make the subsystems a lot simpler and lighter weight and actually have a little bit more range and a little bit more utility out of that battery. So in pack. the case of Lucid, given the same the same battery they're using now, if they were to sell a car that was four or five hundred horsepower instead of a thousand, yeah. you could get a car that was maybe $110,000 retail price Absolutely. and an 800 miles range or something. That's right. And the battery is a big cost driver in the stack, right. but they're, but a lot of folks are kind of using that as an excuse to add a lot of other features to kind of drive the margin up. But you're totally well, right. Well, it's also a Cadillac Escalade versus a Chevy Silverado yeah. work truck. Yeah, yeah. You know, That's the right. underpinnings are the same. It's the, exactly. the shit they pile it, on yeah, there. It's how much NVH do you put in it yeah. and, and what feature set do you buy? from from the market to yeah. to add things but you're you're 100 percent right and and i think that i have that philosophy of kind of i do things in excess sometimes i'll build a crazy car i'll go do something fun but at the same time like if it's something that you're going to use every day there's no reason to kind of turn it up to 11 everywhere that you turn like there's some some constraint and some restraint that actually ends up having some really good kind of long-term benefits in in quality of product and durability cycles and things like that. Do you think the yeah. temptation is just too strong to go? It's a thousand horsepower. Well, you can't sell you can't sell a luxury sedan that is two hundred thousand dollars <laughs> that only has six hundred horsepower. It just yeah. doesn't work nowadays, right? Yeah. And so the horsepower is there, and the way that people define horsepower is is a little bit interesting on on EVs because it, you can define it as the potential power output of your battery pack right or you, the potential power output of the motor or the combination of the two and so yeah if if you have it you sell it right the, of course the marketing guys are going to say yeah pump up the numbers let's get the biggest horsepower number and right. best zero just to add 60 all possible. add them all up together yeah, whatever 
Exactly, exactly. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. That's yeah. how you end up with someone who goes, yeah, well, it's got uh, 2,500 horsepower. It's like, show me the math. Yeah, that. exactly. <laughs> when you get the gear ratio and like all of this stuff. Well, the Hummer's torque number was like 11,000, but it was a very creative math. Exactly, yeah. So you can definitely like, I'm going to pick this part in the gear stack to report my horsepower number. It's mm-hmm. like, wait, you still have a bunch of other stuff left. Yeah. If you understressed... Like if you took that thousand horsepower battery pack and motor and then understressed it to six hundred, could you then pull? How much weight could you pull out by reducing some of those thermal things you have to deal it, with? It depends. I mean, it's not. I would say it's small but not negligible. Um, it depends on the systems that they use, but you can imagine. Let's say, for example, it, the the thermals and the power output are relatively linear. So if you're going to reduce the power output by, let's say, 20%, you can generally reduce your thermal capacity by around the same. The same amount. Depending yeah. on your durability cycles and how they define durability and things like that. But um, but you can imagine just thinking about through the stack, the, the heat exchangers can be smaller, which means now your frontal area could potentially be smaller. And so there's a bunch of this stuff that we would have to sit down and kind of model out what the, yeah. what the real net benefit is. But, but it has a snowball effect. It does have in a the snowball whole rest effect, of the, right? It, of it the relieves car. it relieves the, the the engineering stress of developing and and make, meeting making things that can meet a twelve hundred horsepower durability cycle, right? Versus a six hundred horsepower dur- durability cycle. So now your engineering team can potentially release things faster because they have a relatively you know a smaller bar to meet, mm. right? Mm. And so you still want to deliver quality, but now that you have a bunch of horsepower and your steering knuckles have to be stronger and your wheels have to be a little bit heavier and all of these other things have to kind of stack up to make you be able to ship this car and crash it and 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 make sure that your customers at least stay happy for a little while. So what going back to the to 2004 5 6 7 what yeah. what drew you to EV development as an industry? Yeah. Um, so exactly in that time period, I was actually working with race teams, building race cars for Turner and Beamer World, and uh, I was running motorsports at Dynan and and building ground control suspension stuff and doing a bunch of stuff that, that we can sit it's here and talk about. I can hear when you were talking about that just a minute ago, I was like, God, that sounds like Steve Dynan talking a little bit. <laughs> so that, yeah, that I, tracks. I worked, for, I worked for Steve for a little while. Um, I, and so I spent a lot of my early career in automotive in racing, and that kind of helped me build this discipline and, and like, this is good enough, ship the product, all of that stuff. And so um, in around 2007, I started thinking about, I got to the point to where I was either going to need to move to Europe or Japan to continue my racing career or North Carolina. Um, or kind of get out of racing and, and try to find a job in automotive. And at that time in the Bay Area, there was the Volkswagen ERL, which was their, their electronics research lab, and Daimler had like a little office here, and there wasn't anything else in the Bay Area. And so um, as I was trying to find jobs, one of my friends called and said, hey, there's this little startup. They're building an electric car out of a Lotus, and they don't have any automotive, they don't have any kind of quote unquote car guys locally. They're using Lotus to help with the vehicle development. And so I came in um, a couple of nights to help refine the suspension of one of their prototypes that they had. Um, was it based on that? What was the pre, pre-Lotus pre thing that they had? So the, the, um, this was after that. That was the, um, 
Oh it wasn't my like God. a zap, but it was like some it was weird something like thing that. Like yeah, that. yeah, yeah. It was made by AC Propulsion. Right, right, um, right. Oh, fuck. I forgot what it was yeah, called. Yeah, He's yeah. yellow. Yeah, it looks yeah, kind of yeah. like like that one of those the Berg Spider yeah, or something like that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It looked like there's a lot of ways to die in one. That's of those right. Things. So yeah. actually, the first Tesla Roadster, Roadster 1.0. If you remember, there was like Roadster 1.0, and then recall every car, change the battery pack right, out, then right. 1.5, and then. 2.0 was all of the learnings from 1.0 and 1.5 and then kind of refine it. And underneath was the AC propulsion architecture was in 1.0 and 1.5 and then 2.0 went full Tesla architecture. Mm-hmm. So um, I joined, uh, I, I was helping out in 2007 do, doing some um, suspension tuning and stuff on one of the prototypes and then early 2008 I joined full time at Tesla. And and at that point, I started to kind of separate myself a little bit from motorsport, still had a huge passion, always kept some kind of gas burning car somewhere. Um, and, and really started to embrace this thought of like, what could alternative uh, propulsion look like? And at that time, we were thinking, even before Tesla, we were thinking, okay, what's What's going to be the long-term solution? Is it going to be hydrogen fuel cells? Is it going to be range-extended EVs? Is it going to be pure electric? And at that time, we looked at this kind of progression of uh, battery energy gen- density, the cost curves, the um, the safety implications of the different kinds of cell chemistries that were coming out. And um, in 2008, uh, in 2007 and 2008 timeframe, Tesla decided to go full EV. So uh, about a month and a half after I joined, Elon took over as CEO. This was like the crazy time where multiple rounds of layoffs and all of this stuff. And and in 2008, I was um, tasked with- How many people were there? Multiple rounds, was the company like 100 people? Yeah, it was, it was a small company. Yeah. I think when I joined, it was a little over 200 or 300. And then a month after I joined, we had our first big round of layoffs. And then it kind of went back down to like 150 people or Mm. 200 people. Um, And then, uh, and then as I basically, as I started to work on the Model S, and we called it White Star back then, the entire company was tasked with shipping Roadster because Roadster was the lifeline of the company. And then Elon was injected or he, he came in to help raise the money for the for the next round of uh, funding for the company. And Model S was going to be that thing that we used to raise raise the money and kind of keep the company alive. And so we very quickly uh, formulated how we would build the Model S. And, and we, um, the funny story is that we went to a Mercedes dealership. We knew we wanted something in between an E-Class and an S-Class. And the CLS had just come out at that yeah. time. And so if you look at the kind of profile of the CLS and, and early days at, at Tesla, we had some help from Heinrich Fisker on the industrial design and the vehicle design before Franz took over everything. And so we knew kind of what the silhouette of the car would look like, something kind of like Aston Martin-ish a little bit, a little bit like kind of the um, uh, Jaguar flavor. So we went and got uh, a car that was in that class that we knew how to modify, which was Mercedes. I had a bunch of Mercedes technicians and my engineers knew how to hack the CAN bus of the Mercedes. So. Um, in 2008, we built the first ever Model S, uh, that first show car, which was gray, and it's now red, and the Peterson was built off a of Mercedes CLS. And um, and the rest was just kind of like crazy history. Like we built the CLS, we built a second CLS and reskinned it into the Model S. So the first CLS was state of Mercedes looking thing. The second CLS turned into a, the first Model S. Mm-hmm. 
And then we took a pause, and from there we started building out cars off of real Model S bodies that we would have stamped for us. Um, so yeah, it was that whole time period was really focused on what does a sedan look like? You know, what what else? And this is a story that we'll kind of come back to, but you know, what else has to be real for electric vehicles to get onto the road? Right. And we, you know, that that's where the supercharger network was. Uh, the com- concept of a supercharger network had come up because we were having, and this is a little bit kind of, I think, information that's not not too far out there, but or too much out there. Um, we were looking to work with the SAE and companies like Ford and Toyota to standardize a charging uh, standard, to, to build a charging standard that everybody could use. And they were using the J1772 connector at the time. Well, that was what was being proposed by the SAE, but the problem was that the way they wanted to do it limited current and limited a bunch of different kind of power options. So it, it limited the ability to do both AC and DC charging on one connector mm-hmm. and a bunch of other things that kind of like ultimately diminished the user experience. Were they intentionally limiting it or was it just their design and their specs wouldn't be able to handle where you guys wanted to go? Um, there's arguments on both sides. So we did the engineering calculations on the SAE's 1772 standard at the time, and we saw that there was at least another 40% current that we could run through the their standard, which was their you know conductor size, the the platings that they require on the pins and stuff like that. We saw that they're dramatically undersizing how much current you could run through the 1772 connector. And our proposal was, well, let's bump it all the way up to kind of within 10 or 20 percent, um, and and the user experience would be better because ultimately it's one connector to do AC and DC. Mm-hmm. We have a smaller charge port, so you can kind of fit it into the industrial design. And um, and as we start to build these Teslas and put them on the road, we know that Nissan is here with the Leaf, and we know GM is here with the Volt. Um, we can all kind of grow all of this together. But what ended up happening was the SAE kind of dug their heels in and they said, no, this is our standard. We're not changing it. Even though they ultimately did change it to the CCS adapter. That's right. That's right. And so it took a while. And that's ultimately the reason that Elon said, you know what, screw this. I'm not going to send my cars out onto the roads and then have the users stuck where you know living ev life as we all know it today non-tesla ev life right right where it's just you don't know if the charger is going to work because we also wanted to put data into the seven into the connector so that we could have real-time tracking of what chargers were up and down because we, we knew the chargers ultimately were going to sit in like a starbucks parking lot or something like that and we wouldn't have control we wouldn't have a tenant sitting there and yeah. so we needed a way to communicate to the chargers to make sure that we could make maintain serviceability, all the stuff that we complain about with non-Tesla chargers now. Um, so that was a really interesting. And at the end of the day, the SAE wouldn't budge. Ford didn't really want to work with us on it. Toyota didn't really believe in EVs. If I don't even know if they really still do right now. Yeah, they're, um, they're, hy- they're hybrid basket yeah, is full right now. Yeah, and, and so we just said we're going to have to build our own uh, connector. Folks, got to take a quick ad break for Factor. I love Factor because they solve a problem I have in my life, being too busy not just to cook but to eat. What happens in my life when I get very busy, as I do when I'm home and I'm not traveling, I gotta pile everything up together, and I forget to cook healthy, 
I forget to order healthy. I don't have the time. I don't want to deal with it. And I don't, I wait too long to eat. I get super hungry. And then it's like, I got to order something. Now it's 45 minutes and now I'm really starving and I'm just going to like wolf food. It's awful. And if you're too busy to cook, if you're too busy to go to the grocery store and you don't want to deal with all the prep, Factor is here. They've got fresh, never frozen meals. They're ready in just two minutes. All you have to do is heat and enjoy, then go back outside and soak up that warm weather, head back to work or enjoy that time with your family. They've got calorie conscious options ahead of summer calorie smart meals with around or less than 550 calories per serving. If you need an extra boost of energy or support your wellness goals uh, this spring, they got the Protein Plus meals with 30 grams of protein or more per serving. They've got the smoothies ready to go, a little quick hit of uh, protein and carbs before your workout with some fiber put in. Those strawberry banana smoothies or the mango smoothies, they are what's up. You want to cut your budget? Get Factor instead. Not only is Factor cheaper than takeout, but the meals are ready faster than restaurant delivery in just two minutes. It is great. This May, get Factor and enjoy clean eating without the hassle. Simply choose your meals and enjoy fresh, flavor-packed meals delivered directly to your door. It's ready in just two minutes, no prep, no mess. So head over to factormeals.com slash tire40 and use code Tire 40 to get 40% off your first box of Factor. That's code Tire 40 at factormeals.com slash tire 40 to get 40% off your first box. And now back to the show. It's interesting. I mean, to go back there, it when you explain it, like it makes sense. You know, if no one wants to work with you, like what else are you going to do? But it's like now fast forward to 2023. It's a little bit of a different story. It's now. a different story, and it's like, it's it's it sucks because in order to have that good experience with charging, you have to use this private network. Yep. But if you really want to improve the experience for everybody, the fact that the network is private is bad. That's right. You know, it's and like, the, uh, the catch twenty two is that if you expand the network to everybody, then the experience to your primary customer becomes yeah. worse. Right. Right. And so that's the challenge that Tesla's in now. And I can tell you with high confidence that Tesla wants to open their charging network. And we wanted to open the charging network to all EVs from the very beginning. But the the tension was that if we were to open the charging network to all of the EVs, we would have to build so much more capacity than what we need for our own customers. That like, what's that balance there? How much do we invest in making other people's customers happy at the sacrifice of our own customers? Because well, does that imply that there is no money to be made on other types of vehicles if you're going to sell them charging. Uh, right? Isn't that the implication? Because you got to make it is, your, right? It is, but if your mentality is that my primary source of income is not going to be on charging, it's going to be on selling vehicles, yeah. which is now different. Back then, it was like, we have to sell vehicles to stay alive. And now it's like, what can we sell as a service or as power or Starlink or whatever to keep the lights on while we keep shipping these cars that are actually a lot harder to make money on than we thought? <laughs> <laughs> so ultimately, it started out like, we want to build this charging network for our customers, and we need to figure out a way eventually to make this charging network available to other people. And then that part kind of, you know, Everything else blew up so quick that the making it available to other folks just kind of fell off to the side. 
and and now in Europe they're forcing the right. Tesla super, the network to become available to other folks, and as a result they're doing that here in the United States kind of preemptively before they before they get forced here, and I think if Tesla can do it effectively. Yes, it's going to be obnoxiously priced energy. It's going to be almost as much as gasoline or maybe more in some cases. Right, because they, if they force them to make it available, they're not fixing the price. That's right. Yeah. And, they'll, right. and Tesla will force, well, Tesla will make the non-Tesla owners pay for their development and upgrade right. costs, which, what, which right. is what they're already doing in Europe. If yep. I've spoken to people in Europe, and they're like, yeah, it's available, but it's like literally as much as gas. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Um, which like it's okay for a stopgap, and I think we're kind of in this like really noisy phase with with charger networks as well because there's, you know, all the point uh, the the money that's been poured into you know EVgo, Electrify America, ChargePoint, like all of these other networks, and the fact that there's no consolidation and standardization mm-hmm. across these to give you and I the confidence that we're, we're driving down the road in a non-Tesla, we can stop at this charger and it's just going to work. Um, I still think we're we haven't even scratched the surface from from a hardware perspective and maybe a, and maybe it's a software perspective. What is it specifically about a supercharger that makes it so much more reliable than a Electrify America charger? Um, the fact that Tesla has a constant two way data stream with their with their charging network. And so the, it's Apple versus Android, that's basically. Right. Well, exactly. the fact that you said that. You know, years and years and years ago, they knew that they wanted to be able to talk to the chargers exactly. and monitor them to ensure this kind of security and this reliable network. And we know that EA or you know some of these yep. companies have no way to talk to the the other chargers yeah. and aren't monitoring them. You're like, well, right there, there's the huge disconnect. I, I mean, as an it. as an example, and I think there may be some kind of little circuit loop in the cable, but like, yes, two days ago, I drove by a big charge point bank of chargers. There were at least like 20 of them. All of the cables were cut. Every single cable Whoa. was cut. The receptacle was still in the in the little holder, and somebody came through with a cable cutter and cut every single piece of copper that was exposed. And frankly, there really isn't a good like way to f- steal the copper. To steal the copper, and there isn't a good way for ChargePoint to know that this happened because they're not closing the loop at the connector, right? Yeah. Unless there's some kind of like safety loop that's inside of the cable, which wasn't part of the the kind of thought process early days maybe now is there that much copper in that cable no that there's not stealing? it's not i'm thinking to myself like a cable cutter People like you have the fanciest cable cutters in the world it still takes like 30 seconds to get through one of these cables and there were like 20 of them can you do that out. without getting electrocuted Yes, you, you can. can. Okay. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Because there, electricity scares the shit out of me. Yeah, yeah. I no. ever get fucked up by an MSD box back yeah. in the day, dude? I don't yeah, fuck yeah, with electricity yeah. anymore. Yeah, the ignition <laughs> boxes are scary. Yeah, the idea that someone is going to cut through that cable to me it seems crazy. But so if you power say power doesn't be, come out of the power does not come out of that tower until there is a charge enable okay. circuit. So when you where, hear it go, yeah, then, exactly. Yeah. When you exactly. pay the money, and then it goes you'll like hear that. a couple of clicks generally yeah, yeah. before power comes out. And and usually what they'll do is they'll put some kind of a discharge resistor on that on the back end of that cable inside the box, mm-hmm. so that there's if if there's residual uh, electricity in the cable, it'll discharge itself out. So there's okay. really minimal chance of okay. Of so you can shock. Huh. Yeah. The more you know, <laughs> or if the handles are wood. If anyone know, needs some cutters. copper, it'll take way more time Make to sure steal it's than it's worth. It has to be dry wood. <laughs> yeah, dry, you need dry wood bolt cutters. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Okay, sorry. So, so yeah. So that that not being real time uh, monitored is a, that's a big problem. Yeah, it is. And and the fact that you know there is a little bit of kind of like 
pointing in both directions here. And what I mean by that is that like the Electrify America guy will say, well, my charger was fine when I installed it. And then the Starbucks parking lot guy will be like, yeah, well, it doesn't work now. And then, we'll, you know, some Nissan Pathfinder backed up into it. And what like there's this kind of back and forth happening where the Electrify America does not care about the guy in the Polestar's experience. Right. 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 He doesn't care about that at all. But at least in this kind of stack that Tesla has, somebody can point and say, I don't want my customer to have a yeah, shitty experience. The car is so inextricably connected to that one type of charger yeah. that the Tesla customer, if they're unhappy, is going to blame Tesla. That's right. Whereas if me, Ford driver, blames Electrify America, it's not yeah. really Ford's problem. That's right. And yeah. you can't point at the dealer. You can't go to the Ford dealership and be like, dude, this experience really, really sucks. And yeah. then think that maybe that information will get back to Ford corporate or something. Right. It just doesn't happen. No, it has a quiet effect where you might tell friends that it's the you know, ownership sucks. Yep. Fewer people buy EVs, et cetera, et cetera. But it's, yeah. it, it's the phone lines are like disconnected between yeah. who's responsible for that. Is there something that could be done, you know, to I improve? I mean, yes. So, yeah, what what if you if you were running Electrify America or one of these charge companies, what is the first thing you would do to fix this system? I think and and so I'm I'm not a, a deep charging expert, so I'm probably going to kind of um hand wave on this a little bit, but I think what needs to be done is we need to accelerate the standardization of this through like the SAE or NHTSA or somebody needs to accelerate um, uh, the standardization of the communications protocol. And then that governing body needs to kind of force Toyota and Polestar and all of these other folks to at least adopt that communications bus. And I think a so lot- So they can have the same type of two-way communications that Tesla has now. And, and a lot of the car companies have that. And I know Rivian's, for example, talked to to the Electrify America and, and some of the other ones. But um, I a lot of the standardization is coming. And, a, and I think the experience is going to get better and better. But the OEMs have to sign up, sign up to be part of making it better. Like mm. there has to be some kind of vested interest and, and like some kind of bite when you buy a, a Rivian and you pull up to an Electrify or an EV Go or whatever, and it just doesn't communicate, it doesn't charge, and you've used four credit cards yeah. and like nothing's working. Well, that's the, the craziest thing to me is, is in my experience, and I think other people have mirrored this, is that it's not the... It's not the flowing of the current into the vehicle that is the issue. It's yeah. like real basic shit that's, right. that's been solved already. Yeah. Like a fucking credit card swiper will work at a gas pump for 20 years. You're telling me it doesn't work in this brand yeah, new- Yeah, it like, works in the shitty <laughs> yeah. fucking uh, vending machine yeah. down the street corner yeah, that's been like, like spit on every yeah. day. Like, like you can't make a credit card reader yeah. work? Like yeah. what the fuck? It, it's, like, it's, I think there's just that- so much has been kind of forced into existence in that industry that this is kind of what I'm getting like that consolidation phase yeah. needs to happen where a few of the really good players that really get it need to kind of take over from the noise and just create a clear path but they really need some kind of guidance from the regulatory bodies because ultimately they're just rolling blind and they don't know at the end of the day what ISO or SAE is going to come back and say you know what in Germany this is what they're doing and now the rest of the world should do this too right right so ultimately it's you know the the OEMs are waiting for a standard to happen but not generally trying to push it um, and and the standards the standard folks are 
a little bit ill-informed of what consumer behaviors really are. And so it'll happen. It's just going to be way longer than any of us want it to be. Do you think we, we're, we're too far removed from the development of the automobile and what finding gas was like for the first 10 or 15 years? <laughs> yeah. And that it's a pretty similar uh, parallel? I, I think... Yes. And like I, Bertha Benz was buying yeah, fucking gas at a yeah. drugstore for fuck's yep, sake. You know, that's like, right. Uh, it's like, like <laughs> give me that turpentine over there, yeah. the, the clearest one. Yeah. yeah. We, we went to Th- Zach and I went to Thailand for a, for a vacation and we rented uh, mopeds. Yep. And you would literally buy a liter of gas in a liquor <laughs> bottle from a dude with a cart on the that's side the of the fucking road. That's <laughs> rad. Yeah. That would be awesome. You know, I mean, there is an, an element of that, but also we're in 2023 and it shouldn't be this hard. Right. Right, because it's not the hard things that are fucking up. It's yeah. actually more often yeah. than not pretty straightforward stuff. stuff. Yeah. If an ATM can communicate with the mothership, like yeah. why can't you read my goddamn credit card in a, at this giant computer that's a pump? We, I mean, the fact that I have to even just tap my phone to like a charge point and it just doesn't connect over Bluetooth as yeah. I show up or or whatever. Like it, it should just, you know, why isn't there a Bluetooth module at you know, for the car to communicate with uh, with the charger that that it just pulled up to. Yeah. Well, there's no standard for that yet. Right. And if if we build some of these standards in, then it just starts to happen. And like I said, it's going to happen. Um, but like the standard you're talking, would it be similar to like the OBD two standard? Exactly. Exactly. Right? So yeah. they, basically, the 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 community gets together with guidance from this you know standard standardization bodies like the SAE or uh, or ISO. And they say, this is the architecture on which we want to communicate. This is what the net effect should be. You guys go. And mm-hmm. then whatever you build has to kind of work through this map. And it has to be on OBD2. These signals have to be uh, exposed. This has to be your system latency. And, and we need to be able to plug you know, uh, this kind of a scanner into it. And it, and it com- uh, communicates. So those things are coming. And, and you know, I think... We still have a lot of pain to get through to get to that point. Yeah. Um, I feel it. We have a at the shop. We have a Model Y and we have a Rivian, and definitely you can feel the difference between when you say, "Oh, I'm going to take a Rivian on a road trip" versus a Model Model Y on the road trip. It's like it, it's you choose your frustration. Do you right, want like right. a rat, you know, shit can rattle box or do you want, <laughs> or do you want a nice car? This with one's a really yeah. much more uh, solidly built while yeah. you're waiting for the charger. Exactly. To work. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. So I love Rivians. I think they're, I, they're made so well. I'm I, so I impressed by what they've done from a quality standpoint. I um, agree. But I remember charging the press truck we had in Malibu, something about, and, and maybe you could help me uh, understand this. The, the, the length of the charge cables at the DC fast charger and the placement of where they were versus yep. how you could... Pos- I had to park the Rivian at like a 60-degree angle across like a, I've done a that. bush I've done to, that. Get the, to get the charge I've done to that. reach the thing. It's, yeah, the Rivian charge location, that's another thing that should be standardized, <laughs> by the way, is the charge port location because there have been so many times where I had to park the Rivian in the adjacent charge connector and yeah. then just sit there to apologize to people that are like, <laughs> "Why are you taking up two charging spots?" Like, sorry. Yeah. Is there there's a there's a maximum length of that cable? Yeah, that the it's DC cable. Right? Yeah, 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 because it, there's a ton of current going through that cable, and it gets hot. And generally, those cables, um, 
the especially the faster ones just have uh, water jackets on mm-hmm. the inside and so um there's only so long you can you can kind of make it and and still not have a super hot yeah. setup so all these challenges you know are are dc fast charging challenges right the the yeah. level two charge at home whether it's a tesla connector or a cca is, is yeah. a problem that is largely a solved problem yeah it, it comes down to like when you want to pump extreme amounts of current if you want to go above 100 kilowatt yeah into your pack 350 is is becoming kind of the new s- standard um that's where that's where a lot of these challenges come in because things have to get big and bulky to right. sort of pump that much energy right but that brings me to what you're doing now yeah. when we met last summer um and you were talking about the thing that your company range was working on which yep. was a uh, uh an rv uh, trailer yep. that could that had its own uh, battery pack its own small propulsion system and could be towed by a much smaller less powerful vehicle because it would essentially power itself that's right right and i was like well this guy's really fucking smart he's going to be really really rich <laughs> and then and then and that was that seemed like an awesome idea um and now and then you said we just we just saw each other up at luft where you were you were showing your your porsche and look you've yeah. got cool gas powered cars also so you're you're yeah. um but uh but and you go we're doing semi trucks now yeah so Tell me about that pivot and tell me about what, what you guys are doing at range because it's yeah. it's just makes so much goddamn sense. <laughs> We're trying I can't to. believe nobody has done this yet. Yeah. Um, so this is honestly an idea that we've been thinking about for a very long time. I, I've been thinking about powered and, and electrified trailers since 2009 was the first time I, um, I started thinking about them. And um, a couple of years ago, I started – the last few years, I've been seeing a lot of um, – commercialized electric technology coming to market so things for big semis and and um and uh you know large battery packs and large e-axles and things like that and so thinking i I started to think more and more about the commercial ev space and what you know what the challenges are i knew that there was a lot of um a lot of energy being placed in electrifying kind of the trucks right and back then i was thinking right, kind the of tesla semis like super exactly. fucking hyped and but by, like for, is for it me, real is it bullshit like right. will it work like yeah and and like the value proposition that was just kind of like thrown out there is like kind of crazy like how are you going to make this tractor that has you know electric power with this much range you must be putting a now we know it's around 900 and so kilowatt hours in in the semi but even i was also thinking about kind of medium and light duty because i've been driving medium and light duty trucks and trailers my entire life whether it's taking a boat somewhere or a race car somewhere or something and so i had a a ton of what we call towing empathy for this kind of medium and light duty market and that's why after seeing the the big commercial electrification stuff i knew that that's where we wanted to go but then thinking kind of a little bit pragmatically, like what can I bring to market that proves the technology and then we can go attack the big guys. And that's when we met was uh, about a year and a half ago, uh, about two years ago now, where it was, we were talking about, okay, well, we're gonna start by building an electrified light duty, medium duty trailer that you can either put a boat on or a camper on or whatever. And I'll talk about how the technology works in a second. But then as we started to develop this kind of foundational technology and build test vehicles, test trailers, and and we started to see the results, we started to see like, holy crap, like we could, if we built this for the class eight industry, 
this really ends ends up answering one of the biggest challenges they have for decarbonization is how do we get to a decarbonized future as quickly as possible and the the method so far has been just kind of brute force yeah and the trailer ends up becoming this kind of like uh, electrification gateway or like kind of a baby step and and it's the plug-in hybrid exactly. EV of commercial it, it, vehicles. Exactly, exactly. And it, it, it doesn't just stop there. So I'll, I'll explain basically kind of how the technology works. Um, it, in the tra- Imagine a trailer of any kind, whether it's a boat trailer or a full-size Class 8 trailer. We have an electric axle, so we have propulsion. We have a, a large-size battery pack, but not so large. So in the semi-world, an eCascadia has, I think it's somewhere around 400 kilowatt hours, um, or sorry, six six hundred kilowatt hours. The uh, Tesla. And that's the tractor, right? That's and the Cascadia is a yes, tractor. Yes. Yeah, okay. And then the freight- is that used for long haul or local? No, they're that's only local. using local. Those are around two hundred mile range. Okay. Um, and then the Tesla Semi, which has a claimed five hundred mile fully loaded range, has somewhere around nine hundred kilowatt hours, which is like to put it in perspective, a Model S has a hundred kilowatt yeah, yeah. hours. It's and a ridiculously so huge it's battery massive, pack, right? It, Do you think that's a, a smart use of those resources? I obviously that? don't. Yeah. <laughs> <I'm>, <laughs> yeah. Okay. And, and so ultimately what you're trying to do now is you're trying to have the tractor do all of the work of the system where the trailer is is really – there's two – in my perspective, there are two very high-value pieces in this entire stack. Number one is the driver, which I kind of pulled from my racing days, and uh, Carol Smith, the guy that wrote that – really awesome uh, book that we all read. Um, when I was in college, I got to meet him and, and he got to tell me, or he told me that the most important thing to do as a race driver is make the driver feel comfortable and mm-hmm. confident. That's your job. The driver will tell you if you need if, if they need more grip in one corner or if they're understeering or oversteering, your focus is on the driver. And so I bring that here. So the driver is super, super important in the stack, but then also the trailer is. Because the trailer is the box that's moving it's huge. things, right? Yeah. It's the actual thing that's that's doing the, the work of moving things back and forth. So how can we deliver or de- develop a system that electrifies the trailer, but also gains confidence for the driver? And if you've ever driven, driven a truck and trailer, you know that it's just like uh, one of our guys says it's it's high stakes high stakes boredom right <laughs> and you're just like that's also what you call using full self driving that's right well that's that's a little bit i would add anxiety plus boredom yeah, but yeah. uh it, the high stakes boredom part of this is that like you know when you're driving a full load or an empty load any kind of trailer you feel that there's something that could take that trailer and whip it around and cause major chaos all over the place yeah but then when you electrify the trailer, and we have this now, this information now with miles on the road, you feel like you're always in control of that stack because anytime you go to accelerate, you don't get that bucking feeling. When you go to decelerate, the trailer's doing a lot of work to put the energy back into regen. And so it ends up kind of removing this layer of anxiety from the driver while doing all of this work. And the net result is that we get 41% better fuel economy just by hooking one of our trailers up to the with existing a regular ass tractor with your 1976 Peterbilt or your 2022 Freightliner regular Cascadia. What does that mean in in real numbers? What is that like? What is the I don't fucking know. What's the yeah. fuel economy of a semi truck? So a right good now, one? A, a really real. So some of these like truckers that that do a lot of really 
good work on on efficiency. They're getting somewhere between nine, ten. Some of them are getting like eleven miles per gallon. Better That's than like, I thought. Actually, exactly. I, I'm actually it, kind of impressed. Typical is somewhere around eight to nine miles okay. per gallon. So, okay. for example, when we turn our trailer off on a brand new eCascadia and we go over Pacheco Pass, we're getting somewhere around eight to nine miles per gallon average. When we turn the trailer back on, we get somewhere around thirteen to fourteen miles per gallon going over the hill. That's that's it's a very very big deal. different. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. So I never explained how the whole system works. So we have we, had, we just had the uh, the doc uh, the diagram up. Oh, Zachary. rad! Will you put that back up? The diagram. There it is. So so essentially, the e axle is what's doing the propulsion. The battery pack is what's managing and storing the energy. And then the real trick that we have uh, is that we are measuring the forces in real time at the kingpin. The kingpin is the mechanical connection between the tractor and the trailer. It's like a trailer ball kind yeah. of in, in, in our world. And so it gets it gets moved forward under braking. It gets moved. It doesn't back move. Under, no, I mean, I mean yeah, a yeah, pr- pr- that's pressure. right. It gets, it, it it gets applies, yeah, applies exactly. pressure. Excuse me. So it's it's that the kingpin stays stationary, and we're basically monitoring the forces that are being brought into the system. And then we basically, when we make inferences on whether the car is turning or going straight, accelerating, going up a hill, going down a hill, decelerating, and we can actually, and then we send that information back to our system, and the system makes in real time uh, a decision on to whether or not to apply torque in positive or negative direction, and the net result is then we can actually make the trailer functionally disappear from behind the tractor. It's amazing. Uh, it's pretty cool, and and the cool thing is—is is this similar to like tra- where it trains, where you've got a diesel a diesel loco towing these giant trains versus like a passenger commuter train that's you know it's connected to wires, that's right. but every car has drive wheels and stuff that's like right. that. And and I believe that that distributing the drive across not only the tractor but back to the trailer ends up giving you much more opportunity to recuperate energy. And the, it's the same philosophy of, you know, a dual motor Model S has more range than a single motor Model S. And that's because there's a second axle to reclaim some oh, of that, well, that energy that used to be lost in the brakes. And so we have... That's interesting. Why does a dual, why does a dual motor Mach-E have less range than my rear wheel drive one? Uh, that's a good question. I don't know. That's it's, a, it's rated as less. I don't know why. That, we'll that may be that. something that has to do with the, how they drove the wrote the drive algorithms mm-hmm. and, and the charge okay. algorithms Sorry. and stuff like that. Tangent. But Sorry. Essentially, what we're doing now, because we have an e-axle in the trailer, we're taking what would have been lost thermal energy by applying the brakes, and we're putting that right back into the battery pack. And the net one of the... One of the cool net benefits is that even if you leave the depot without charging, this becomes a big deal. If you leave the depot without charging, it's 10 to 15% better fuel economy just because we built a mild through the road hybrid. And what would have been lost as thermal energy in the brakes is now back into the battery pack as chemical potential energy. Mm. What kind of control does the driver have in the cab? Through does it, does the driver need to do the, anything? The driver does not need to do anything. The only can the driver do anything? The, the, the driver can, and so we're building this. One of the things that's kind of important to understand about what we're building is a platform. We're not. We are building a singular product and shipping them to customers, but we are looking at this as a platform. And so, for example, some of our some of our operators that have you know our customers have anywhere between. Five and ten thousand trailers in their fleet, and some of them have above a hundred thousand trailers in their fleet operating in currently in North America. 
and um, they they kind of present data differently to their drivers depending on what men, what uh, operator uh, is working. And so what we've done is we have a very very basic three lights. It's like red, yellow, and green that's in the back on the side of the trailer that the driver can look and say, oh yeah, it's working, it's not working. But if the driver or the operator says, no, I need more data for my driver, we have that communications bus, kind of like an OBD2, like Mm -hmm. a diagnostic bus, where they can jack into our system and then we can present whatever data they want. But we're not not getting ourselves caught up in this kind of um, HMI philosophy of, of how do we present the data the best and all of this stuff because the operators know that and the drivers know that. And we're stepping back and making sure that we develop a really robust, you know, durable, long-lasting powertrain platform and battery system. And then the rest, the, the industry can kind of, you know, add things to, to, mm. uh, to add features to our system. Yeah, I'm just trying to think of what the driver, like, you know, if the driver knows you know, okay, I've got a, I've got a big uphill coming up, yeah. and, and then there's a big downhill. So yeah. maybe I can put it in this mode for, you know, 50 miles, and then put it in. The, so is there? They is don't there, need to do they that. Don't do it's anything. all. It's all because we're measuring physics in real at, time at the kingpin. That's right. That tells you everything. We're measuring you know. physics in real time, and because of that, we don't have to interpret anything. We can kind of have a situation where yeah. driver A did it correctly, and driver B didn't hit the button. That's right. His boss is like, "What the hell, man? You lost us a bunch of money." We react in real time to the driver to yeah. kind of give this like virtual driver coaching where we're applying for DSC. You know DSC. Uh, the, the DSC control? sport controller. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They they turn they turn yep. a, a passive adaptive suspension into an active one yep. by installing a G meter in your car. Yep. That when you turn right, it will load up the outside. It yeah, hacks yeah. your system. I mean, that reminds the, me of that. Uh, uh, Pasm, thing. Pasm does the same thing. Yeah. Um, a bunch of these, the the new um, Tycon with their predictive handling or whatever they're doing with their cameras does it also but yeah yeah i mean ultimately what we want to try to do is make our system transparent to the user and we want we want the tractor to feel like it has no trailer back there at all although there is a little bit of a nuance that we're trying to work on tuning we're only a year into this specific version of this project or less than a year what we're trying to tune in is we always want the driver to know that there's a presence of a trailer when there is a trailer right they have to have that kind of mental awareness but how much load do we allow in the kingpin while we're assisting and we're, we're realizing that we can actually allow a decent amount of load so that the driver feels the trailer but maintain that that uh, reduction in energy consumption based on how we deliver torque and and regen for the for the system has this basically created a traction control system for trailers do trailers have traction control or are they very passive with air brakes uh so the trailers all uh have abs now okay. the brand new trailers that you buy they come with abs uh, the majority of them still run on air brakes, um, but there is a migration now towards uh, electric calipers on disc brakes for the tractors. So or, they can control mm. each wheel or each axle. They, they are not thinking about that quite yet. Mm-hmm. Um, and there is, a po- there is a possibility. I mean, it's obviously on their kind of product roadmap, but right now they're just looking at electric actuation so that they can slowly eliminate the air system from, from all of these tractors because mm-hmm. the new electric tractors don't need air at all. And, and for their brakes, they have strong enough, enough power to, to deliver uh, the servo um, energy to the, to the brakes. And so we're not making any safety claims quite yet because 
I believe that the safety claims that we will be able to make will be pretty tremendous because not only can we work with the ABS system to make the system safer, but we can actually add well, the functionality. It's exactly. It's extra, you know, we you, can add the functionality of stability control, low yeah. friction surface uh, uh, drive, traction control, all of that stuff will be some. Can that, the motor torque vector? On the trailer, or is it when just a one direct drive? The, the current axle that we have in our first series of vehicles that we're bringing out to the public is a single motor driving both. both. Mm -hmm. uh, but when we get to a point to where we have more sophisticated braking systems, mm -hmm. um, then absolutely we'll be able to do individual torque control. And we have our medium-duty demonstrator that we have actually has two hub motors, and we can do full differential torque on the two. And, and um, if you guys come out and visit sometime, we have this demo where you have a 6,000-pound trailer that you're moving around like it's on an air hockey table because it has Yeah, I was going to say, could you use this motor in conjunction with a kingpin sort of wheel stand yep. to just that's push our, these things that's around money, like that's it's our a, money demo. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 So you, you basically um, it, essentially- Like it's on a pallet jack. That's right. Yeah. Exactly like that. Because now what we do is we put it in what we call shopping cart mode or creep mode. And it takes the loads that it's reading and kind of scales it way down to human scale. And we have a little clip-on attachment that just clips onto the kingpin. Wow. And then you just move this entire trailer around. Dude, being able to move trailers around Dude, a yard a without deal. a truck, I that's mean, like crazy. We we now don't – we used to have this fancy like hookup thing to our forklift that had a ball on it and like move the trailers around like you yeah. see in most yards. Now we just go turn the thing on and grab the end of the trailer and walk it to wherever we want. That it's is so rad. crazy. That's yeah, really cool. It's really cool. Does this system work uh, better for long haul or urban trucking, or is is it same difference? It depends. On, so the operations are, are really interesting. It it will work on long haul. The, our system right now is scaled with about 200 kilowatt hours of energy. We wanted to make sure we, we didn't put so much energy that it becomes difficult to charge overnight. Or if you can bring DC charging to your loading dock, we can actually charge while the trailer is being loaded and unloaded. Oh. So we're totally transparent to your operation. But that's putting DC in these in these trucking depots is like a that's like going to be an enormous problem. So right? trenching and building a lot a quarter mile away from the building and putting a bunch of chargers out there becomes a very, very big deal. Yeah. The buildings oftentimes have the power that we would need. Because uh, they're running like 2,000 amps that's or whatever. Because right, they're shore powered off yeah. the dock anyways. Right. And so we can actually leverage the power that's at the dock and simply install the DC charging hardware or the AC charging interface. And we can actually charge while you're loading and unloading the trailer, which ends up being this huge deal for them. Because now most of these yards are landlocked. They can't expand their yeah. footprint. And now you're saying, okay, take take room away from your customer goods to build this charging network. Now your tractors can only go 200 miles, by the way. They can't go 400. So uh, the, to answer your question specifically, the system works great, uh, exceedingly well, below about 200 miles. Um, and that's where you get your 40, 40 to 50% better fuel economy. It's 41% on a uh, mixed highway driving cycle and then 48% on a city cycle at lower speeds. Right. Um, but if you expand that to long haul, let's say we have one customer that wants to do 400 mile runs. And what we can do is we can actually change the drive algorithms. In that case, for over the road trucking, we change the drive algorithms to, to provide, let's say, 60% 
propulsion instead of 100% propulsion. Mm -hmm. And and now you can go that 400 miles and your 41% then becomes, let's say, 35%. Still still substantial. I mean, just to kind of give you a sense of scale, the entire kind of autonomy uh, world in trucking right now is saying if everything goes well, um, you'll get around 10 to 15% better fuel economy. And if you think about the push for autonomy and trucking, yeah, yeah, and the net result being that it's ten to fifteen, and you have to invent something that doesn't exist exactly in order to do exactly. it. Exactly, that's the big thing for yeah. us. Is like, you know, what's the physics risk? Not really any physics risk. It's really about system integration, yeah. quality, reliability, durability. Those things are become but like our everything risk. you have already exists. Everything we have already exists. Yeah. The only thing that we are creating here, inventing, is the system itself, the system safety, and then and and basically the the how we end up manufacturing these these boxes and and everything that kind of goes into yeah. it. Yeah. Which but is you're not, it's not like right how do we eliminate people? It's like yeah. we've got batteries, we've got motors, 100%. we've got cables. And what's funny is like, that like some of these customers, some of the biggest spenders in autonomy, these are folks that have have spent a lot of money working on making their trucking fleet autonomous, still tell me that they don't expect drivers out of these trucks for 25 years. <laughs> Right, because they they're like we don't even know how to trust the system, yeah. and, and it's true. Like, I think it's 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 a little bit foolish to think that you're gonna build an autonomous system and then in the next five to ten years drivers are gonna be out of jobs. That, that's not gonna happen. That's yeah. not gonna happen for a very long time. And so we need to kind of come to reality that the driver is the most critical piece in this stack. Let's make their life better, not not you know make them feel like oh my job's going away in the next five to ten yeah. years because it's not. What happens if you connect your trailer to an electric semi? Uh, it's really, really cool. This is another fun benefit is that we essentially double the range of most electric semis out there. Wow. And so double? Double. So if, if you have an e-Cascadia that gets about 200 miles uh, uh, range, realistically about 170 miles, we can get 300, 350, in some cases double all the way 400 that's, mile range. That's serious. Which a big deal because these yeah. folks have just spent, you know, Cost basis for a regular diesel, full, fully loaded sleeper uh, Cascadia is $197,000 delivered to your door. The E Cascadia with no sleeper, short uh, short cab is 470000 with like a three to four year wait list. <laughs> and so now imagine the folks that have just spent millions of dollars on a fleet of electric tractors that are starting to show up today and then they're finding out that they can't do that 220 mile route they can only do the 170 mile route because they don't want to get into that kind of buffer zone of like low low miles and so we end up expanding the utility and a lot of these folks that have this 250 or 200 or 300 mile kind of radius that they operate in uh, now can use our trailer with their electric semis and actually deliver their goods in this kind of quote-unquote zero emissions fashion that's pretty cool yeah but you're using a. These are still huge batteries. I mean, a 200 kilowatt hour battery is still very, very big. It is by regular people by, standards. By passenger car standards, it is a big battery pack. Yeah. It's so. How do we? If we're gonna, you know, this is. I mean, this is hugely important stuff. Like, what can we do now to exactly. reduce our emissions now? To the starting with the dirtiest shit on the road. That's right. Like, I get it. But like, one of the things that like is a concern for me and maybe some other people is like, how do we make sure in in America that we aren't doing the thing we always do and just outsourcing our filth to other places we don't have to look at? Yeah. So 
the battery becomes and and we struggled with do we go bigger than 200 less than 200 200 is kind of this like sweet spot that gets us the power output that we need remember power is uh directly linear to the battery capacity you have uh in um on board and so i, I would say in the in the through the lens of of the passenger cars it is the biggest battery pack aside from the the hummer ev yeah um but if you think about we it's are a landmark of automotive that's, that's achievement, right, that's really. right. Yeah, yeah, that we, we call that the pinnacle <laughs> of something. Um, but um, we are still the smallest battery pack in this kind of trucking industry, and we're we um, we are working to piggyback off of a lot of the work that's happening to scale some of the cell chemistries that are really really right for this this type of uh, application. Um, there are I don't want to kind of go into too much detail on exactly what cell chemistry we're using and and um, why we're using it but but I I agree that 200 kilowatts is a big battery pack 200 kilowatt hours is a big battery pack but it it's so much better than these 600 and close to megawatt hour packs that that are going that our cabs. customers would be forced to otherwise buy right and is it better to put in your mind is it better to put a 200 kilowatt pack in a semi truck than it is to sell to get three people out of their macans and into a model y or a maki -E or a you it's know a what i mean good question i don't so we're working through a bunch of this kind of like carbon footprint yeah evaluations right now and calculations and it's as you know it's a very very complicated stack to kind of work through and we're trying to kind of get standardized on you know how many barrels of oil or or tons of co2 that does our system take off the roads versus a, a tesla e-semi or a um uh, freightliner e-cascadia or an f-150 lightning for that matter mm -hmm. based on the dollars invested right our trailer system is not going to be expensive it's going to be about the same price that these folks are already used to paying for trailers from great dane and hyundai and, and other companies like that and so we're, we're not coming in and proposing this like four or six hundred thousand dollar new tool that they have to figure out and they can spend. retrofit existing trailers, right? Yeah, so there are a few of our customers that have existing very large fleets of, and these are, to be specific, there are 53-foot dry vans, 53-foot reefer trailers that we can we can convert for some of these customers that have large fleets that have recently spent money on building out their fleets. We can actually build a pipeline adjacent to, to where they deploy the fleet, and our system will kind of clip right into their existing trailers. And so you build like a mini factory where they are to do the right. install? Oh, yeah, that's and you cool. have to think about like the, the logistics of all of this becomes really complicated because you can't stack 40 boxes on a freight car and, and send it over, right? <laughs> right? But we can stack 40 or 50 or hundreds of battery packs and, and drive axles and things like that and then do final marriage adjacent to where these boxes already live. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. But it's, it's part of that story of like, why do we keep why do we have an obsession of building new things for the world and why can't we kind of leverage what we have and and upcycle some of these these old trailers and 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 um other bits and pieces that that we can make use out of yeah what do you um i've heard about uh hydrogen when it comes to to trucking yeah do you does do you, do you guys discuss that at all, or does it does it not seem like a it's, real feasible opportunity? I think there are going to be specific routes and specific kind of operations where hydrogen fuel cell makes sense. It's not going to be. Uh, my personal opinion is that twenty years from now we're not going to be talking about hydrogen trucks. We're going to be talking about 
electric trucks with some new fancy cell chemistry that somebody invented that all of a sudden, you know, increases energy density or something like that. And it's not going to be a, a switch function either. It's going to be kind of stepping our way up. But um, I think hydrogen can fill a, a decent gap on some specific applications. Um, but when you're talking about um, mobility and, you know, the electric, the electrical infrastructure on our roadways kind of sucks, but it's there. Mm-hmm. There's nothing on the hydrogen side. Like there's right. no hydrogen because filling stations. Zach got stations. stranded at Harris Ranch yeah. for two days because they ran out of hydrogen. Yeah, exactly. At the one station. <laughs> and so it, it is one thing to it say was that stinky. Yeah, and, and it's dude, hydrogen is expensive to move around. It yeah. is hard and expensive to store and generate and move and all of this. And so yes, maybe there's like some somebody comes up with a, you know, a small hydrogen generation plant that you that's the size of a whatever. Chevy Tahoe or something that they park in a parking lot and then they can generate hydrogen somehow. But ultimately, I, I we're we're developing this technology to work on electric, gas, hydrogen, whatever alternative fuels folks come up with. It's just additive to all of this stuff. Mm-hmm. And we did that very, very specifically because we can't predict the future and we don't know what our roadways are going to look like five or 10 years from now. But we know that our trailers are going to be behind these these tractors yeah do you think i mean I, you know you read a lot about some of these silicon valley guys and the long-termism yeah right and it's the future of humanity and fucking yeah. colonizing <laughs> mars and all this shit and you're like what about like we could fix some of the problems right. like today using things that we've already got and we don't actually need to remove drivers from cars we don't actually you know and I, it's 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 there's a lot more pragmatic kind of things we can be doing yeah i spent i spent uh the a good part of my recent career kind of helping shore up some of these kind of utopian thoughts and and like <laughs> yeah. and i and i think that you're 100% right that um it's really good to have that vision but you have to figure out how do we baby step our way to that vision and not just kind of force it into existence and and there's a a certain I would say, and forgive me to all my friends, a certain kind of level of arrogance that folks like myself and and all of these kind of like Silicon Valley folks have had in the past that are just like, wow, look at this really cool thing we can do. And I think we can make that industry better over there. Okay, everybody attack. Yeah. Like, and then the folks in, in the industry are like, wait a second, like the used car industry, right? Like Carvana comes in and like ruins the dealership network and like a bunch of other stuff happens. And now the dealers are all basically like, what's going to happen to me in the next five years? Right. Um, it, so I think we, we're we trying to take a different approach and we're looking at, yes, what's important 20, for 20 years from now, but also what can we do now? We have to do something yeah. now. It's the same. I mean, it's the same thing in passenger cars. I think the this this sort of forced adoption mentality. Yep. It sounds great for a politician to say that shit. I'm gonna be the guy who cleans the air yeah. in L. A. But like, actually, until this infrastructure thing is sorted, like a 40, 50 mile plug in hybrid, it would 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 increase the. Av- or, uh, the average fuel economy of every car on the road by multiples of three, four, or five in some cases. Yeah. I drove a Volt for three years, and I got an average of like 270 miles a gallon or something. It's it's definitely, I think the consumerism plays a big piece into this of like, well, you know, if I'm going to buy something alternative fuels and eventually I'm going to buy an electric car, I'll just go buy one now, mm-hmm. right? But I think the we we get caught up in the 
product and forget about the kind of pragmatism of, of the using the product. And I mean, it, it's kind of typical stuff, right? Like we had iPhones before, um, before the touchscreen technology was any good and we're complaining for a long, long time and it's still kind of shitty, I guess. But it's, <laughs> uh, anyways, yeah. Yeah. It's such, it's, it's really interesting. I mean, when you, when you were like, oh yeah, put the battery underneath the space that's already vacant on this trailer. That's right. Like, yeah. It's just like, oh yeah, that, well that makes fucking sense. Yeah. We'll just do that. The, like, the other thing that's really cool is that because we're only doing 200 kilowatt hours and I know it's a big pack, but it's still only 200 kilowatt hours and we don't have a 900 kilowatt hour pack. You have to remember that the the more range the tractor has, the more payload has to come out of the box to fit the batteries in the tractor. Because this system has an 80,000, or in some cases an 82,000 pound maximum um, allowance over the road. Mm -hmm. And so now if your tractor went from weighing, let's say 18,000 pounds to now 35,000 pounds, then that has to come out of the box. Right. And so now you're not getting your sodas to, to 7-Eleven anymore. How does your battery affect that? Where our total net impact is 4,000 pounds. Okay. And if you think well, about a certainly less 50,000 or 60,000 pound loaded trailer, it's a relatively small percentage. Uh -huh. And that doesn't include any of the uh, potential electric allowances that we're getting for, you know, there's, if you have an electric vehicle, you get a 2,000 pound allowance. So you're only really impacting your load by... 2,000 pounds. And and by the way, that's why all the photos that you see of the Tesla Semi are with a Frito-Lay trailer and not a Pepsi be, trailer. Because air, bags of air, are bag, yeah. bags of air are pretty low. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And so um, we, we're paying very, very close attention to the amount of payload that we end up taking out of the box. Um, and and we're, we're very mindful. It, it comes down to that kind of pragmatism. Like when we decided to go from consumer trailers to commercial trailers, the first thing the team did was spend three days at a customer site here in Southern California, going on ride alongs, talking to the mechanics, talking to the union reps, because we didn't want to develop something that was going to blow up this operation. Mm -hmm. We wanted to develop something that worked. And we did, we went as far as like opening with the mechanics, opening their toolboxes and saying, what kind of tools do you have in here? Oh, they're all English or they're all metric. Why, you know, we'll, we'll develop our system to leverage the tools that you already have in your toolbox. Can the trailer back power the living in the cab so that if they're sitting there all night, you yes. know, in a rest area, they don't have to run a generator. That's right. Yeah. So we have our trailer is, is also a kind of a power, a mobile power station. There are some applications where we're looking at putting a lot of energy in the trailer, but that's for like disaster recovery mm -hmm. and, and other things. But at the very basic uh, you know, this 200 kilowatt hour architecture can absolutely power the ancillaries on your trailer, on your tractor and on the trailer. If you, you know, a lot of folks are looking at automating the roll up doors and adding cameras and other sensors and telemetry to the trailers, but the power architecture has never existed on these trailers. Yeah. And so people are talking about building little battery Lift packs and like and all whatever. of this stuff. Yeah. Now that our power architecture is there, we've exposed the ability to get either 12 volts, 48 volts, or high voltage, whatever you need. At, at on the trailer to power either a tractor overnight or other ancillary components. And what we about solar tiles on the roofs? Yeah, so that's that another too. thing. So there are some specific applications that we're looking at adding solar, and we can actually generate a decent amount of solar on the roof of yeah. the 
of the trailer. Especially um, if you're in Phoenix or, you know, whatever. Yeah. yeah. We have to be a little bit mindful of the weight that we're adding and then also the mm. fact that these trailers get beat the hell up, like, yeah. a lot. You know, they, they run under trees and branches are scraping over the top and like all of this stuff. So sure. we are talking to a, cu- a couple of customers very specifically about adding solar to the tops of their boxes for, for the reasons that they need, but it's all built into the architecture. Yeah. The business and environmental case is obvious, like, okay, shift to commercial because you could sell someone a thousand or 10,000 yeah. or a hundred thousand rather than one. But are you guys... It, the idea that I could tow a car or a boat or something with a pick a half ton instead of a yep. super duty and and or you know and that's whatever. Happening. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's not a that wasn't a bad idea no, either. We will get there, and and you know the the thought that um, now you can. I mean, there's so many other benefits on the consumer side as well. Um, if we talk about that for just a second, like for example, if you think about a boat trailer. Uh, if you have a new electric boat, the the this really cool new Enetix or the the Air Netix, it's four hundred thousand dollars for the electric wake, wakeboard boat. Um, I gotta Europe, try one of those. That sounds cool as yeah, fuck. Yeah, have you, have you been on one? No, not yet. We gotta but, find. We gotta yeah, find okay, a way. Right, to, I'll, I'll see. Yeah, if I can call Nautique. Yeah, let's yeah. go. Let's hit Lake Havasu, baby. Um, <laughs> uh, if you think about, you go to Lake Havasu, right? Or for us, it's like, you know, Folsom Lake or Lake Tahoe or something like that in Northern California. There's no supercharging at the lake. There's mm-hmm. no charging at the lake. Oh, God. And so what if we put... Yeah, what do you do? Yeah. Do, I'm, for real, are you charging at your house on a you, level you, two? You, and you it's charge it at your $12 million lake sh- lakeside oh, house. Dude, that's super trashy. We yeah. can't be doing that. Yeah, yeah that's horrible. The neighbors are going to see. That's horrible. The HOA said no boat trailers in the driveway. So the real cool thing, so we actually... We actually mapped this out as one of the consumer products was you build a boat trailer uh-huh. that's with the got, pack with a pack yeah. and then you just basically walk your trailer down with the shopping cart mode to the shore or to the loading dock you you can fast charge off the boat off the trailer to the boat to there give the go. boat another charge throughout yeah. the day so, th- so wait hang on water sport use time two to three hours super air nautique gs 22e 90% fewer moving parts than a gas combustion towboat in its class. Dramatically reduces routine maintenance. I bet that thing is fun it's, as hell. It's fun for literally two hours yeah. and then you're done. <laughs> and then you got to charge yeah. it for yeah. the day. Yeah. Yeah. But, I mean, honestly, little side note, I think the right application for electric boats is pontoon, pontoon boats. Pontoon boats. 100%. 100%. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So there's more to come on that in the and future. And also the uh, uh, hybridization of of yes. medium and large let yachts me run, as Let well. me run off of hybrid as I come out of the wake 100%. zone. And then when I get into the wake zone, yeah. then turn it all on and let totally. me get out. Like, totally. How, yeah. Yachts I, are already heavy as fuck. Who cares? Yeah, like, exactly. Whatever. You imagine the, the the really cool maneuverability and propulsion you can get out of a couple of electric jet motors. Yeah, and if you've like, got a yacht that's running like an MTU fucking v16 turbo <laughs> diesel yeah, exactly like run a jenny off that bitch and charge up exactly no big deal yeah yeah, yeah. so boating is a is a big thing uh, so we we looked at all of these different applications like uh electric side-by-sides and being able to charge in the middle of the mountains wherever you are and mm. like all of this fun stuff um this is interesting the gs22e boat to go back to it in the charge time 
it says supercharger. I wonder if you can. I wonder if there if someone nah, just ignored I, the copyright or if they've got a Tesla the connector. Yeah, yeah. And I and I don't know how they can charge at eighty kilowatts in an hour and a half. It's it's a bigger battery than that. But it doesn't say the uh, capacity of the battery, does yeah, it? Yeah, I forgot what the number is, but it's a pretty substantial size battery. Interesting. Um, okay. But anyways, th- there's there's a. The consumer application space is really interesting for us because that's where a lot of my personal passions live. And, and you know, building a, a really cool electric race car trailer would be awesome. Yeah. Whether I'm using an electric race car or a gasoline well, race car. Well, there's just so many uses to have power when you're at the track oh or my on gosh. the road. Yeah, or, that's or why the totally, was helpful. And the, totally. The lightning was I, awesome. Yeah, I, I listened to that. It was it's such a rad thing to have that kind of power available to you. Yeah. Um, and and we converted. We had an Airstream. When we were thinking about um, electric you know, consumer trailers, we had an Airstream that we bought that we converted to all, all lithium. And we put like 25 kilowatt hours in it and did a bunch of stuff. And it was, it was pretty cool as like this standalone power station. We were just like, yeah, just plug into the Airstream. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And in our demo today, this week uh, in at the uh, Advanced Clean Technologies Expo, in Anaheim, all of our TV sound system, the catering uh, hot plates, like all of that is powered off of our trailers. Yeah. So it's all, and we're all in a parking lot, no generators whirling, nothing, and everything is just powered right off of our trailers, which is yeah. really, really cool. It's, it is really amazing to have that. Kind of, I, I, I think the, 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 obviously the commercial one is yeah. more important for the planet, but the, the consumer level one is very interesting to me, yeah. to me personally, because that's exactly the kind of trailer I would like to own. Yeah, the fact that you could, you you can go buy a boat or a race car trailer and not have to go buy the F two fifty or the yeah. the whatever super duty that goes with it. And to finish off that point, there will be a series of time where where we will have to do a bunch of validation testing to make um, NHTSA and and DOT comfortable with reducing or removing some of the gross vehicle weight ratings. It will take a different type of a trailer, but it's already in our pl- plan and and. We have the architecture for it, and I can talk to you about it um, after this. But it's it's coming, it's coming, yeah. and I'm pretty excited about that. I'm going to be in the market for a trailer in the next two years. I'll put you on the list. Yes. Um, do we have some Patreon stuff? This is, uh, I mean, such interesting stuff. And of course, if you want to ask questions of our guests, Patreon.com/slash The Smoking Tire Podcast. You can uh, get the live show and uh, ask questions. You can get the show without ads. You can get the show early, and uh, you can even get extra shows if you are a patron. Um, I'll say I'm okay. a patron, and it's worth it. Thanks. Are you? Yeah. yeah. Nice. Uh, Ryan Morris says. My fleet is 400 tractors and 5,000 trailers. Most of our long-range van fleet is drop-and-hook trailers that sit for three to five days. I assume losses will be minimal. And what is the effect of gross vehicle weight comparable to a reefer? Uh, I think you already like, mentioned gross vehicle weight, right? Yeah, there's a few questions in here. So um, we we the, there's this really interesting thing where there are some operations that have 10 to 15 trailers per every tractor like tesla and then there are some operations like some of the food and beverage distributors where it's a lot closer to one to one tractors and trailers so we're initially focused on the customers that have closer to a one to one mix until we we kind of get some uh, some consumer miles or some miles on the road with our customers we can then start to look at um, some of these different 
types of fleets like the one that that Ryan was talking about to understand exactly how we slot our technology into the those fleets. So uh, it is it is a real um, thing, but we also think that we can we can because the trailer is a lot more flexible and a lot seen as a less of a critical asset than the tractor is on the yards. When you distribute the energy across all of your trailers, you actually gain a bunch of flexibility on your yards because then you can pick this trailer up for short haul, zero mission run within the city of Los Angeles or something like that. And then when you do over the road, then you kind of, you know, you pick the right trailer. So it, the losses will be minimal if they're sitting for a very long time. GVWR is one of those things that's kind of TBD, depending on the quality of our technology, which I have high confidence in. Uh, and and the costing is is comparable to a reefer. So, um, oh, and his last question is supply chain uh, trailers continue to be back ordered. Is this being built in other factories? You already mentioned that with a big a big order that you yeah. could go to them and assemble That's on right. site. So we're, we're um, looking. So we are we are working with all the big trailer manufacturers that that you, that you may know to integrate our technology into their pipeline, but we also have this option to, to take this in existing install fleet and electrify 5, it. 5,000 trailers is a lot. That's a bunch. 5,000 is a pretty big That's number. It's a big number. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, Ryan, oh, also, wow, another one from Ryan. Well, this guy's in the industry, so he knows the right questions to ask. Thank you, Ryan. Could the trailer assist be factored into the EPA revisions on phase two and three, i.e. allowing non-compliant tractors to be grandfathered in when pulling a range trailer? Oh, I guess uh, yep. certain tractors yep. are getting uh, so over the last phased several out, years, right? Yeah. Over the last several years, a lot of these operations have been kind of pushed into or forced into buying modern diesel tractors, newer ones, because they have better Wasn't emissions. Wasn't this what our, the dude was just talking yeah. about? Byron's friend Nick yeah. uh, owns some dump trucks, yeah. and he works in Georgia, but um, a lot of people will come over to California to buy these trucks that are no longer allowed to be registered yeah. here. And yeah, yeah. like little miles. Else. So the... the uh, I guess the, non, the non-regulatory answer is absolutely yes, but there's a lot of regulation to, to be worked through, and I'm not sure... Um, I, I'm not sure exactly how that's going to go, but I can say that the the regulatory bodies and the governing bodies are are very excited about the technology that yeah, we're that we're sure producing. they are. Uh, James Cowley says, uh, could powered trailers use a sort of pedal assist ability to help reduce fuel consumption and strain on the tow vehicle's drivetrain? I think we've already answered that as a yes. Uh, Alternatively, could it be used to increase the towing capacity of a tow vehicle? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Eventually, we we will get there. Um, we have a lot of testing and, and confidence to build in the industry, but we, we will get there. Yeah. Uh, Corey McCluskey, I think we already got to this based on the Kingpin sensor, but uh, how is wheel speed managed between the front tires powered by the engine and the rear trailer tires powered by the motor? I imagine there's a delicate balance between efficiency and jackknifing. Yeah, we never push in the Class 8 space. We, our trailer never pushes the tractor. It's mm-hmm. always just just following. Just on the side of drag. And as far as wheel speed is concerned, uh, the road is the great equalizer. So as long as we're not spinning tires on the trailer or on the tractor, the road will equalize the wheel speed, and then we command uh, a torque value. Yeah, uh, which goes into Tim's question. I wonder if they could leverage this system to improve stability, similar to the way cars and especially EVs can actively damp undesired yaw. Well, I think you said Absolutely. that's a yes. Yeah, yeah. we can actually measure... 
uh, a harmonic before the driver can feel it. So as as this thing is starting to sway, we can measure it before it hap- before uh. the driver even starts to sense it, and you can apply differential torque. You can apply the torque at the trailer to change the nat- natural frequency. So you of the can system. basically eliminate trailer sway. Uh, yeah, I wouldn't say a hundred percent. There's yeah, always like weird cases, but yeah, yes, yeah. absolutely, pretty much, absolutely. Yeah. Um, okay, Levi says, uh, is there any emerging battery tech you've seen that could come close to replacing fuels for applications like ships and commercial aviation? Seems like lithium only goes so far. There, there are a lot of interesting things. You know, that like the some of the new, really interesting cell chemistries that are coming out of some of the university work, but. It's. I think it's just going to continue to be incremental steps from here on out for a while. I saw a presentation at uh, the thing in Germany last year, uh, which was very interesting. Yeah. And they had a functional prototype of a hydrogen fuel cell that was a cartridge yep. that could be installed in the fuselage of a plane and was uh, modular and removable, and it could power a turboprop at uh, 380 or 400 knots. Was universal hydrogen? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. That's, it was fucking cool. Yeah, the founder is a, a good friend of mine. It was awesome. Yeah, 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 I yeah. was like, holy shit, you can really do this? Yeah. Like, yeah. And airports have a lot of room where they could build a hydrogen uh, a station that could refuel that's these right. You asked me about hydrogen. I think this yeah. is the first real commercial application for yeah. hydrogen mobility. And, but he did say uh, that, that one of the things we may have to get used to is for uh, shorter range commuter flights, you know, New York, D.C., Chicago, you know, for those flights to take a little bit longer because we, you know, customers would want to have to be on a turboprop as opposed to a jet. But it could be potentially a zero emission flight. Yeah, I think if you remove the friction everywhere else, then I think sitting in a turboprop for an hour versus half an hour or 45 minutes or something, even if it kind of matches the commute time closely, like yeah. relatively close. But if you just remove the anxiety, mm. it's almost kind of like the American version of high-speed trains. It's like, yeah, we don't need trains. We'll just go up in the air. Right? Yeah. So I think it, that could be could be interesting. Yeah. The presentation was amazing. Yeah. I think it was middle, mile, cool. middle mile logistics is going to be a really big deal for that industry. Yeah. Yeah. Um, uh, oh, that's a watch question. Okay, hang on. We can we'll do the watch question in a second. Uh, anything anything else specifically on? No, I I okay. organize them so all, all right. Of, uh, well, we'll, t- we'll do three random ones. Yeah, let's do it here. Okay, Ryan also says car related question. Current brand lineups. How would you rank the luxury arms of each manufacturer? I suppose based on their luxuriousness. Lexus, Genesis, Lincoln, Acura, Infiniti, Audi, Cadillac, et cetera. Well, assuming uh, Rolls-Royce and Bentley are yeah. just at the top. E- yeah, yeah. Um, I, oh, so luxury versions of of other cars. So, you know. The Cadillac Escalade just feels like a fancier Tahoe. Yeah, it's not. Except not, for that. Have you seen the launches on the new one? The, the, oh, the V? V? Yeah. Oh, my it's God. Ridiculous. It's crazy. Yeah. Um, but Lexus yeah, the, does a really good job. I think they do. Yeah, they're qual. But that's but durability is a. Uh, they won't blow your mind with the materials or stuff like that. But they'll last a long time. That's right. Um, I think Acura does a great job. Yeah, their biggest problem is that modern Hondas are actually quite nice. That's right. In most it, ways. Yeah, we were just talking about um, the Civic Type R versus the Acura. Yeah, um, and there there's. 
Acura needs to step it up on the luxury side, I think. The new, we uh, just saw the t- the Integra Type S at Long Beach Grand Prix. It looks very right. nice. It does look it does look like a nice car, and right. I think it'll come in at the right price, okay. too. Um, I mean, Audi is is really excellent at yep. their interiors and their tech, and they really don't share much of anything with the Volkswagen cars yeah, other than Audi, the A3. Audi's, a, I think... Doing a really, really great job. It's not my style, but it's yeah. definitely really. It's always Audi. Ever since I think the A4, um, in the late '90s, just been kind of killing it. Yeah, with. and I think Lincoln actually makes very nice cars, but the problem is who continues to buy them. Nobody. They they, they <laughs> keep getting the first people that buy them are like livery drivers, which totally ruins the the appeal of them as a luxury product. Did you read the Bob Lutz book? Yeah, uh, and where he said that his map for all the GM brands were like. Pontiac should have become the rear-wheel drive, like, hot rod, like, outlaw part of yeah. uh, GM. Lincoln should have just been, like, ultimate lug. Oh, no, Lincoln, Lincoln is, uh, is Cadillac. Ford, you sorry, mean. Cadillac should have been, like, ultimate luxury. And, uh, and Buick you know, was, like, Bu- the grandmother's car. Something like that, yeah. Like, Buick was kind of, like, conservative, like, inexpensive. But in, And I think um, there's there's something to be said about that on, on the the – Lincoln side where they just step it way up, yeah. like step it way, way up. And Lane and I from from uh, driving Wallace have talked about like Cadillac and Lincoln should be like nothing under a hundred thousand dollars, and it'll take a while for people to start getting it. But after a few years, people will be like, oh, you know, the Cadillac is actually well, nice. we'll see if that uh, $300,000 Cadillac hatchback oh, sells. God. It's very weird yeah. looking, but it might be amazing. I don't I know. I think ultimately it doesn't really matter because they're just going to mess it up and we're just going to have some cool cars sometimes and mostly shitty cars. And, <laughs> and a Cadillac version of the uh, something on the Corvette platform, I still think Dude, there's room for that. that I mean, they be... almost did it with the XLR. The XLR, if they had a manual, that thing would be a cult yeah. classic right now yeah they, yeah they could they were right there yeah, they were right they there were so literally close. yeah yeah they were so close. i'm surprised there's not a big like manual swap thing for that uh just, i'm surprised as well it seems like doable replacement parts are probably so hard to find for that car i, I read something tail. that like a tail light was like yeah. four grand or yeah, something yeah. but uh and genesis is doing they make really nice genesis cars is killing it they make just great cars every, all over the place the brand hasn't like hit yet yeah. but like although i'm seeing more of the crossovers yeah the sedans i haven't really hit here in la but the crossovers seem to be doing very well that one the gv uh, 60 or 70. The one that looks like a Bentega if you yeah. squint. Yeah, yeah. Man, when Tiger Woods yeah. rolled that bitch down the hill, yeah. it's like, oh, is he rolling a yeah. Bentley to the fucking <laughs> upside down and yeah. crashed? It looks just like yeah. a Bentega. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> no, they're, they're doing a good job, too. All right. IH Cheese has a watch question. Uh, I want to get a watch for my girlfriend as a birthday present. I mentioned the Baby G, meaning the, the G-Shock. She liked the pastel blue digital. I also... Uh, I also like it, but for women's watches under 500, um, limited selection for women's watches under 500. I'd go to Seiko. I would. All, I always say Seiko. Vint, you go vintage Seiko yeah. too. Yeah, you um, could get like a Seiko. You could probably cocktail eat, time or Alpinist. Yeah, any um, of like the Seiko five line. Yeah. The, and and I wouldn't be if like my wife has always been about like feminine looking watches. She has a 32 millimeter Rolex. She didn't want anything bigger than that. Yeah. But then when I got the moon swatch, she was like, oh, my God, that's so cool. And she now wears this moon swatch around. Yeah. So I I would say Casio, maybe look at 
Baby G is a pretty aggressive watch. <laughs> it <laughs> like, is. It is. Um, it's cool, but like I would think that maybe she would want something a little bit more sophisticated. Than I Baby got G. Hannah a vintage um, a Seiko Lordmatic, which is yeah. a really interesting watch, mainly because it has a trapezoidal crystal. Yeah on it that's almost like the top of a cut diamond and it really does like funky things with the with the dial that's it's weird cool. looking but she really likes it, it was 300 300 yeah exactly she really likes you can that find piece. a lot of good stuff in the in the kind of seiko automatic range and and i would try to get something that's a little bit more timeless than a than a g-shock although i love g-shocks yeah i like a g-shock too uh kellen has a oh a luft question luft was this okay. weekend and uh, check out our live podcast from luft uh what Car or cars from Luft or Airwater, uh, would you guys add to the garage if you had unlimited resources? I have some good answers. What do you this. got? Uh, the Speedster Blue Carrera GT. Oh, yeah. That Excellent. Was, There's a photo of that on my Instagram. It's Look, beautiful. Is that what it's called? Speedster Blue? Speedster Blue. Okay. Uh, and then the um, Pablo Escobar IROC car, the yellow. Oh, yeah. yeah. Um, and then, Which was the Fittipaldi car also, right? Everything looked Fittipaldi. Yeah. Wheel fitment, everything was perfect. Yeah. And then there were a bunch of G-bodies that were just like so rad, like the Moonstone the car. Green, the green one. The green was one. fucking awesome. Yeah, dude. Yeah, uh, and there was the a nine nine three in the uh, Fixie uh, booth. It was yeah. the one up on the stand. The Kinesis one. Oh, uh, was it Kinesis? Yeah, yeah. Not Kinesis. Fixie. Yeah, sorry, yeah. sorry, wheel companies. Yeah, I okay. fucked you up. <laughs> that thing was dope. The green turbo nine nine three turbo was fucking badass. Yeah, all of the the nine nine three RSs that were like just oh, there's like scattered seven of throughout. Them. Yeah, that, I'm not a nine nine three guy, but I really like those cars. Yeah. Um, I would say for me, it would have to be that that. A Fittipaldi IROC car. That thing was. Or one of those two 74 uh, Carrera RSs that was a blue one with the gold Carrera oh, yeah. and the that gold wheels, and then there great. was the red one with the gold. Either, yeah. either one of those. The blue two. one, there's a photo of my Instagram. Yeah. It was tucked in the corner. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I really, I thought, the, I thought the, the, the placement of some of the Easter eggs at this one was really yeah, good. Yeah, it was cool. Yeah, there was some really nice hidden kind of, your car yeah, yeah. was stuck off to the, uh, up on one of the alleys, yeah, which was, was pretty neat. Uh, yeah, I showed up. So, so Saturday morning, I showed up at like 6.15, driving my friend um, uh, Adam's 356, which is a super nice hot rod, and it was just a sea of cars. It was like I was already late, like all of this stuff at 6.15 a.m. I showed up the next morning at 6.15 in my Targa thinking, okay, I don't want to be like that guy. I showed up – sorry, I showed up at 6. I, I was the, the first, first car. car. <laughs> Zwart's like literally just like warming his legs up, riding a bike in the parking lot. <laughs> he I'm probably like, did a hundred miles on that bicycle easily. Yeah. <laughs> and I was like, "Hey Jeff, am I too early, or am I just in the wrong place?" He's like, "You're too early, but I got you." And then he pulled me up into that that alley, which alcove, was really which nice. is really yeah. neat. And that I feel bad for Jeff's mint bike. Green. Did you see him? Like every time he needs to like get out, he just like drops the bike on the ground. And has no kickstand. Like, yeah, oh, this and is like proper road bike. Meanwhile. Uh, Patrick Long is on this really cool Super 73, yeah. like just chilling. I think the Super 73 is the move. That's not the right necessarily because I don't want to work out, but like those like railroad yeah, tracks just going through that. the thing. It was all not road bike friendly. Yeah, we were. Yeah. I was shocked that that he was riding that bike around. But I think the event overall was really really fun, and and those were the cars that kind of stood out to me. I yeah. was surprised that weren't more modern cars on the second day. No club sports. Yeah. Mm-hmm. No no uh, no nine nine two GT three no RS, which I know is old a bit. Uh, yeah. There were no nine five nines. Only one one Dakar, no, and it was Porsche's car. No nine eighteen spiders anywhere. That's weird, 
right? That is weird. Like, I kind of feel yeah. like they just forgot about trying to, they didn't forget about it. They just didn't feel like curating the second day. It was just like, I don't know. Well, the transactional cars, 944s, yeah. 968s. Like, I only saw a couple of each. But those were 924s. Nine, no, I saw, I saw one 944. Okay. I saw one 968. No, two. One was a convertible, one was a coupe, but... And then um, two nine nine one dot two speedsters, but put in the line of just all the regular cars. Yeah, like well, he they he told me that they weren't going to do as much curation yeah. on the second one. They said it was it was more like a lightly curated cars and coffee. I so like the vibe of the second day better. They, though. Pat told me that if Less they padded. that they yeah. may separate them by a week. Yeah. Next time and give themselves the breathing room to do a little more. Curation. I would almost say that Luft should kind of go the direction of Quail, pump the right, pump the prices of the car entries up, get really really good stuff, and then the next day let everybody in. Yeah. So it's like a same kind of weekend situation where you could build kind of like a little bit of like a lit weekend or something out of it. Mm -hmm. The first day is like you know a little bit upscale, less cars, just really really high quality stuff, and then the second day would be. Just dump I liked it, all it. In. there was some stuff on the first day that was not necessarily really expensive yep. but was still cool because that's I think a, a really important part totally. of the gathering in the group is the inclusivity if you have a, a cool idea yeah 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 uh, Scott Vogler says front windshield tint opinions Don't do zero. It. zero zero just stop. the answer Scott, is zero I just, just looked this stop. up after I read it's this it's illegal question. in all 50 it's, states it's, it's very dumb because it gets it gets dark at night um, <laughs> but you can get 0% ceramic tint sorry 100% ceramic tint for your win you know, windshield. Yep. Let's all the light in, but blocks the UV and all that shit if you want to. But it still makes your windshield a little bit wavy. I put that on my Targa, yeah. and I was like, take it off. Yeah. Take it off. Yeah, don't my M3 came with it. I didn't put it on, and yeah. I fucking hate it. Yeah. Really? No. Yeah. Your car has it? I, I hate it. it. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. yeah. I will not be ordering it. It's, it's, <laughs> it's not good. Okay. Um, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't tint a windshield ever. 20% uh, on the sides is what, what most factory rear windows are, so that's fine. Yeah. Dude, go ahead and do that. You'll still you'll still see. Um, but, yeah, no windshields. Uh, last one. <laughs> I don't know about this. James Cowley says the smoking tire seems like a perfect fit as a sponsor or race team for Ken Block's Gymkhana grid. Race team. Uh, race team, maybe, yeah. but, like, I don't know how much money that costs, but I promise it's more than we have. I, I can't understand how sponsorships do very much good but yeah i think i think yeah. jim connor grid is awesome yeah. yeah i was actually talking to scotto yesterday i ran into him i'm gonna uh try to enter my mark one escort oh, oh cool yeah, in yeah. the jim connor grid yeah and so um oh yeah. yeah just so people understand that you're where you're coming from yeah uh and 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 you know you know a lot about evs and that's how you earn your living but but give me the rundown of, of Ali's yeah. garage right now. So Mark right, One Escort. Right now I have a Mark One Escort with a Cosworth YB um, motor making around 350 horsepower. It weighs... Oh, look at that. That's weighs, fantastic. weighs uh, 2,000 pounds on the dot. has a Quaif sequential six-speed. It has a full modern WRC suspension. So those videos that you see of Mark II Escorts doing like six-foot jumps, this has exactly that same suspension from those guys. Cool. So it's it's a pretty pretty dialed car. It is British, and it is old, so it's always break Something obnoxious is breaking on it. <laughs> Um, so anyways, that, that car, uh, has been around for a few years and, and I, um, it's, it's a fun track day kind of a, uh, car. Is I there have, any historical provenance to it or yeah, is it a just... little bit? So it is a, it is 
the car came out of Germany, out of the Cologne plant, um, and it went over to the Philippines and it raced for a little bit. It's, a, it's got all the Mexico stuff on it. Uh, it went to the Philippines and it raced a little bit, and then, um, and then it was brought over by the owner from the Philippines here, sat in a garage in the Bay Area for 15 years, and then I resurrected it, modernized all the suspension. So it doesn't have significant race history, but it is, you know, it's got the FIA sticker on the cage and, and all of that stuff. Cool. Um, and then you've got this bitch in 2002 yeah, uh, the, BMW. This 2002 that I have is a 71. It has a 2.3 liter uh BMW S14 Evo Which is motor. E30 E30 Evo. Yeah, E30 Sport Evo motor, right? Yeah, it's yeah. the it's the earlier one um and it was built by Terry Tinney who does all the North American motorsport engines for BMW. Uh 275ish horsepower um and uh and it's it's a really really fun car. It's super dialed on the suspension side. This is the car that this is my forever keeper car. I've had it since 97. Um, and I've done everything on it, uh, and, and I'm pretty excited to to continue to mess with it and mod it. But it's a it's a pretty dialed car. Um, and then I have a '62 Land Rover 109 Doormobile, so it's a four door Land Rover, and the Doormobile has that sideways pop top camper. Oh yeah, it's cool. a factory car. Um, seems to be the first Doormobile imported in the United States. That one's actually going on Bring a Trailer soon, so keep your eye out nice. on that. Uh, and then I have my Targa, my 991.2. Mint green. Mint green, paint to sample, but... Um, mint green's a good color. It's a I fun like, color. I like mint green a lot. It doesn't offend anybody, It's which is really cool. <laughs> like, it just got, everybody, like, smiles at it. I yeah. had a sapphire blue GT3 before, and it was just like, you know, with the wing, with the noise and all of this stuff. Um, this car fits a whole bunch of really kind of, checks a lot of boxes for me. It's a manual. My two girls can sit in the back seat, and uh, and the top goes down, and it's like they're just delightful. It's, it's such a nice a, car. It's such a good car, and this one has Olin suspension on it, and I have 19-inch wheels for some more sidewall, and it has GT4 shifter and a bunch of other little bits and pieces that kind of sharpen it all up. Um, but it's a it's a fun car. It's that thing is great. That was the car that was uh, tucked away on uh, Sunday at Airwater, and it was a very real treat to see it with the matched Thanks. luggage. Yeah, yeah, that, the, the mint green. That suitcase. was one of those. You know, you walk by the Tag Heuer store, and you're like, I don't really want anything in there. Wait, what's that bag on the shelf? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. There, that's as it was on uh, Sunday. It's yeah, exceptional car. And uh, yeah, I. I I wanted to do something different with the wheels, so I put the white gold on the wheels and on the 19-inch BBS wheels, and it kind of sets the whole car up and yeah. it makes it super unique. Yeah, it's good. It's yeah. a good car. I, I could do 100,000 miles in that fucking no problem. I've had that car now for two and a half years, and I just turned 31,000 miles. That's so, For someone as busy as you yeah. and with, with many cars, that's a pretty good uh, number. Typically, I would be driving that car down to this trip to Southern California, but it's just been crazy. But yeah, I drive it everywhere. I love yeah. that car. Well, that's awesome, dude. This is a great show. I, I, it's such an important topic. So, um, thank you for having me. Of course, it's uh, Range Dot Energy. Yeah, is the website. That's it. Very easy. And uh, if you want to follow Ali on Instagram, it's uh, Racing Underscore Ali. Sorry for the underscore. Onto the gram. Fuck your underscore. <laughs> Um, but and of course, range energy on on Instagram as well. But um, it's su such a cool thing, and and you know, using 
fucking improving our situation using things we already have just makes way too much Trying. sense. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And put me down for a single car trailer You're with power. on it. Don't worry. I'm ready. Yeah, yeah. And I we will build need. a Gymkhana car. And then we build the Gymkhana car. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Everything. <laughs> well, safe trip back north. Thanks for doing it. Thank Thanks you. to our patrons for their questions. And uh, we're going to be back tomorrow. At, uh, tomorrow? The third. What's tomorrow? Tomorrow's we're the back, second. We're back the we're, third. We're back Wednesday the third. Um, Sung Kang from the Fast and the Furious Sweet. plays Han, uh, and will be in studio with us. And Amelia Hartford will be with him because they have a podcast together that I appeared on. So we're going to talk Fast Ten, and we're going to talk about what Amelia's doing. It's going to be uh, famous people extravaganza up in here. And then Thursday morning, uh, we've got Cam Ingram from Road Scholars. Uh, will be coming in to talk about his Luft experience, all the crazy things he's doing with Porsche. And I think he's bringing Syria with him. So we're going to hear about where the bodies are buried. Uh, thanks for listening, everybody. See you later. Bye.